0: This week on Semi-Intellectual Musings, we up the ante and wager on games of chance.
1: From crazy carpets to all CNIs, casinos are not places to go unnoticed.
0: This is no simple game of DABO. This is Placing Bets. Hey, Matt. how's it going buddy? I'm doing fantastic, how are you doing?
1: Fantabulous actually, I'm sitting in my closet right now again. So <laughs> Yeah, uh, <laughs> be I, uh,
0: I, I have the pleasure of being able to open a window today, it's not uh, freezing like minus 40 out, so mm. the sun is shining, the snow is melting, spring is uh, about a month and a half away.
1: Yeah, I took a walk with my jacket undone, so I was yep. very excited. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's, uh, you know, the pleasures of being Canadian is that if, uh, warm weather, which is like above 10 is anything less than 60 days away, we get excited.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. That's,
0: that's how that works. Yeah. Yeah. So what else is new in your world?
1: Uh, well, uh, yesterday it was actually, I went for a nice skate on the $3.7 million, uh, boondoggle on Parliament Hill. Yeah. Yep. Went for an ice skate
0: right uh so that's the rink that was built for two weeks or three weeks and then they extended it a little bit
1: yeah yeah it uh they 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 extended it it was um it was really cool man i gotta say i want to be really cynical but it was the best ice i've ever skated on like Mm. it was phenomenal
0: (laughs) Hmm. so yeah Yeah. it's a it's an artificial rink that they put outside right like there's uh they have the whole cooling system under the ice to keep it going and stuff
1: yeah, yeah. And it's like, I think they ran a, um, I think the teams that participated in the, like the NHL like outdoor game, the uh, the classic or whatever, um, I think they held a couple of practices there uh, just okay. for some fans. Um, so the ice surface is like NHL quality. Um, it was spectacular. It was like plus six and uh, the ice was perfect, perfect. Nice. And people had been skating on it in like one direction for like four hours before we got there. Right, right. And it was still perfect. Yeah, well, that so sounds, that really sounds good, good, man. good man. I, Yeah, I took a bunch of pictures of Mel and Violet and a few videos. I even took a selfie video, which is very rare for me. So, yeah, that, that's um, that's moving yeah.
0: up in the world, Matt.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. So what have you been up to, Matt?
0: Uh, you know, uh, ha- trying to plug away, <laughs> PhD in. uh looking at a lot of stuff to edit, uh, podcast-wise.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. We've been like, I've been pretty damn busy like on the front end and then you're going to be real busy on the back end it looks like
0: oh yes it's so we are beating around the
1: bush what are we talking about phil uh
0: well we're talking about our mini series on chronic pain chronic illness uh and i think we've settled on calling it chronicity
1: i like that yeah 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 no it's um it's cool like i've uh so i've been interviewing pretty much everyone except uh we just interviewed uh I, uh somebody today uh together, so that was kind of an interesting take, but yeah. uh yeah it's been really fun like really big uh response from people like a lot of people have reaching out um, huge i think i've I counted them up I think I got like eight interviews in like six days or something like that wow, wow, yeah, so it's um it's motivating it's um energizing um it's really powerful these accounts that are shared uh but yeah, it's been a lot, but um, yeah. it's funny when you have like a good purpose for doing something, you can kind of like grit your teeth through, uh, through some of the dysfunction afterwards. So
0: That's right. And, you know, uh, having a good purpose is what we try to do here. Uh, so welcome everyone to our podcast, Semi-Intellectual Musings. <laughs> I am Philip Primo, your co-host. Oh,
1: and I'm Matt Sanderson.
0: Uh, This is the podcast that looks at social sciences, humanities, and arts. We do it by book reviews. We do it by looking at the published world, which could include films, music, uh, academic papers. And we try to connect it to your everyday life. Uh, So for all returning listeners, thank you so much for joining us on our little journey, our little space that we've carved out to talk about the social sciences, humanities, and arts. And for everyone who's new here, we've been talking for the last few weeks sufferers of chronic illness chronic pain trying to get to how they deal with it what uh, what it looks like what it is for them to have this life um, that you know could really be like shit sometimes right Matt like that's kind of one of the things that I've been hearing
1: yeah and it's um it's funny when I was doing similar interviews for my uh, graduate research on concussions I found that I would it seems like the interviews took a negative turn like pretty much all the way through um and i think with this series i'm trying to um get some sprinkle some positivity into it like what are your strategies what are some words of advice that you do um i actually have found that it's um it's like a nice middle ground and then we're seeing all these interesting new ideas and themes coming out like resilience is, is something yeah. that is definitely just coming out organically. Like yeah. if I have to say it simply, these people are really strong, mm-hmm, really courageous, absolutely, really brave. Yeah. So that's the thing that's been most inspiring for me.
0: You know, everyone has their unique story, but uh, one of the common things that I've noticed is the idea of perseverance. Um, everyone seems to have something that they cling on to, to get them through the day, the week, the month, the year, uh, even when they're faced with adversity. When they're faced with a new diagnosis or they're faced with the prospect of a, of a decline in their health, they seem to be able to latch on to something, whether it be mindful practices or podcasting. And, you know, one of the things that we're going to touch on in the series uh, is going to be, why is it that the podcasting community has so many people who have chronic illness or chronic pain? It seems like disproportionate.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think that's how uh, the idea started emerging. Like, obviously, I did this sort of research in, in grad school, but the idea for this series, actually, it goes out to um, a fellow podcaster. Her name's Car- um, Carla, and her podcast is There Might Be Cupcakes. Uh, she did a standalone episode. It's The title is something about spoons, but I think it's episode number 17, if I'm not mistaken. And she just... Her podcast is normally like a literary review style podcast, like oh no, lit class, but not as dirty. <laughs> um, but she did this one standoff episode where she just revealed and disclosed all of her struggles, and um, it choked me up. And um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to talking to Carla, and um, I encourage you all to check that out. It was really the um, the thing that really gave me the kick in the behind to uh, to get this thing off uh, off and running. So. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and uh, you you know, um, as far as releasing these go, we're gonna um, we're gonna take some liberties in how we do it, but uh, what our promise is, and it's a promise on semi intellectual reasons as a podcast as a whole, is it's going to be true stories, uh, told truthfully. So we're not gonna we're not setting anyone up, you know, for the uh, gotcha sort of moment there. Uh, what we want to do is uh, carefully craft something to be able to reflect. Uh, the real stories, the true stories, those heart-wrenching stories that we've heard, but also the good, also how people have overcome some uh, negativity in their life. Or maybe I shouldn't use the word negativity. Adversity, I think, is uh, probably the the better word.
1: Yeah, and uh, I think it's fair to say sprinklings of negativity as well. It it comes in there, but uh, I think you said it really well um, uh, when we were chatting off mic, Phil, was... uh, you want to have these converse, these people in conversation with yeah, one another. absolutely. So, uh, yeah. describe how the episodes will actually kind of look and, so, and sound I, like.
0: So starting in one month, so starting April 1st, we're going to roll out uh, these uh, episodes in part of a mini-series. And really, the people who we interview, we're going to put them in conversation with one another. It's going to be probably thematically focused. Uh, and I'm aiming to have maybe seven or eight complete episodes where the people who we interview get a space uh, get to talk, um, and the way that you, the listener, can contribute to that uh, is by following our podcast, following uh, what we do up until then. We'll be giving you some updates um, and uh, subscribing to the mini series. We're not sure if we're going to release it as a standalone thing or, you know, maybe on this stream. We'll see. We'll see. We haven't figured out the details yet. Cool. Um, but, so they uh, can follow us on social media absolutely uh and i'll drop the details uh right after we play our little game matt
1: oh yeah that's right you know we gotta
0: we gotta break it up we we gotta lighten the mood here
1: (laughs) so um i in light of the warmer weather that we've been having around ontario and quebec um i'm noticing a lot of uh i call it sedimented dog poo uh, where there's dog poo upon dog poo that has been slowly melting down through the uh, slowly melting snowbanks, you know, you, just like it's a great ages of dog poo, right? Not There's months of dog poo. Don't need so, the details. So that's what I'm thinking, right? I'm, I'm, I'm taking my dog for a walk, seeing all this dog poo, and I think, oh, I got a perfect, what do you hate more? So Phil... And, uh, yeah. So what, 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 what is the,
0: what do I hate more?
1: What do you hate more, Phil? Do you hate stepping in old dog poo or... Do you hate getting shit on by a bird more?
0: Uh, ooh, I don't know. See, the stepping in it uh is bad cuz it's on your boot or your shoe. Right. Uh but it, you know if a bird decides to go on you it could be on your hat or your coat. Mhm. It could mm-hmm. do the trickle down thing where it kind of gets on your ear.
1: Yeah. Trickle down um, pooponomics.
0: Yeah. You know, where, where I live, they, uh, I don't get pooed on that much. The birds tend to leave us alone.
1: But, yeah, they uh, keep to themselves.
0: They keep to themselves. But I, I'm definitely, you know, I, I can see that dog poo when I go out for a walk in the woods. It's there. It's, oh, man, this is a hard one. You know what? I think I'm going to say stepping in it. Really? I, hate, I hate stepping in it more because uh, it's already in front of me. Like, I should have Mm. been able to see it. Why did I step in it? Why wasn't Uh, I paying attention? And as we've learned on past uh, segments of What Do You Hate More, the game where we choose two things that are pretty bad and then decide which one's worse, uh, I tend to go with the ones that make me feel guilty. You know, I I don't like feeling guilty. So stepping in it makes me feel guilty, Matt.
1: Huh. So you're feeling guilt because you can see the poo in the path ahead of you, and yet you still mindlessly step in the poo yeah
0: huh
1: yeah see i i think i hate hmm that's a tough one because i came in i okay yeah i think i hate getting pooed on by a bird more because yeah. it happens so rarely and then when you tell the story to somebody you know it's a, it's an interesting story it's almost like getting struck by lightning almost um they're like oh well that's good luck and hey, you just want what? to take your poops but whoa, whoa
0: hold on Have hold you on heard hold that? on no, no. Getting shit on by a bird is not at all the same as getting hit by lightning. Those are two completely different things.
1: Well, I mean, just statistically speaking. No I guess way. It's relative to where you're from, right? No way.
0: What do you mean, statistically speaking? Like, no. More people get shit on by a bird than hit by lightning in a year.
1: Yeah, you're probably right. You're probably I mean, getting
0: right. hit by lightning is a big deal.
1: Hmm. It is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, because you can't wash that uh, lightning stain off, I guess. <laughs> it's kind of one of those <laughs> No, your, t- your,
0: your t-shirt is pretty much done if that happens to you.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't turn you into a Harry Potter, Potter with uh, the tattoo on the forehead or anything either. No, so, that is yeah, a movie. That's fiction, um, yeah. But still, like, the rarity, because it's getting pooped on by a bird is pretty rare. So I think, for me, just because it's unexpected, and then it's like, sometimes you don't even notice and then somebody else has to point it out like oh my god what is that so Mm, yeah yeah, for me i think i hate hate getting pooped on by a bird
0: yeah um they're both pretty awful matt (laughs) i don't know (laughs) where you decided to pull this out of uh but you know it kind of follows up a little bit from our last episode where i asked anthony have you ever peed in a bottle uh so you know there's a maybe there's a common theme going on uh going on yeah, I don't know. Oh, we'll see.
1: I can't wait to hear what his answer could be. Don't spoil uh, it. <laughs> well, yeah,
0: okay. I, I mean, it's a very simple answer,
1: but... <laughs> Beautiful. So, um, so today, uh, I might as well just let everyone know, today we're talking about casinos. Um, I worked at a casino for 12 full months, and uh, so I have a lot of observations on working there, the training, and then as I was doing the research for this one, It just blew up, and I got a bunch of Dostoevsky quotes, and we're going to talk about the political economics of casinos. So um, that's what we're talking about today.
0: It is going to be a fantastic episode, also because it is peppered with the music from the band Alexander. The band Alexander is an alt-pop group from Indianapolis, Indiana. Their debut album, Playing Basements, is available everywhere, and I would strongly, strongly urge you to go listen to the band Alexander's playing basements that's the name of the repeat matt on spotify or apple music you can also catch them on facebook uh, they give some nice updates there and that is at band alexander they are formed uh, by luke chris eric and josh we're gonna play some of their music today uh, the first song that we're gonna get into is titled claustrophobic when we come back casinos Welcome back, everyone. This is Semi Intellectual Musings. I am your co-host Phil Primo, and I'm Matt Sanderson. Matt, we just heard the band Alexander and their one of their tracks titled "Claustrophobic" off their EP album "Playing Basements." How nice was that?
1: Uh, Pretty nice, as I'm sitting in my claustrophobic uh, closet here.
0: I thought that was appropriate for you, (laughs)
1: yeah. And
0: uh, it's it's apropos, and uh, you know, it's kind of apropos to what we're talking about today: casinos, gambling. Uh, you know, what are, what are we going to do today, Matt? What, uh, what kind of questions do you have for us?
1: Well, um, so the idea for this episode came because I worked at a casino as a blackjack dealer, uh, for a year, two different casinos, only lasted six months at both ones. So 12 full months. Um, and I wrote a paper in my undergrad on the, sort of the, I don't even know, like it was just sort of like a random third year paper on the right. casino, spatial layout, stuff like that, and then when I was a grad student, I also wrote a paper where I interviewed, um, believe it or not, my mom and my grandma, friend of the show, Matt's mom, uh, by the way. Hey, Matt's mom. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I just decided to turn it into an episode, and once I started putting the ideas down, it kind of ballooned into, I don't know even what to describe it now. So we got a lot of ground to cover. So we should. We uh, do. We do we have a lot of in. ground to cover. Yeah.
0: All right, well, let's start where we tend to start, Matt. uh let's go back in history,
1: yep, for sure. uh, so I could have picked a whole bunch of anecdotal examples all through the archaeological past of instances of gambling and um games of chance and things, and you see them they're they're all over the world all through time. um, but I actually thought this is a perfect opportunity to talk to my talk about my favorite nineteenth century Russian author, believe it or not, I do have a favorite, and I am that big of a nerd, and that is Fedor Dostoevsky. So Dostoevsky wrote this book, it's called The Gambler, uh, it was published in 1866, and it is about his, it's kind of like a semi-autobiographical account of his own uh, addiction to playing roulette of all games. So I thought it was actually kind of interesting. Um, Dostoevsky famously has lived an impoverished life, he was like, not even paycheck to paycheck, um, you know, very poor, and he wrote about this, and like the downtrodden in society, so the gambler specifically um he agreed to this awful contract um where if he did not deliver a novel or of twelve or more signatures uh by November of eighteen sixty six uh the person he signed a contract with would acquire the right to publish dostoevsky's work, all of them for the next nine years which is just an awful contract, right? So just under the hair, yeah. yeah. which I think you would appreciate Phil working to deadlines. Uh, he mm-hmm. was able to like pull the shit together and get this thing published so that he didn't lose the r- rights to all his own intellectual property. D so, money. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like you know, I like Dostoevsky. He's a great writer. He's very quotable. So um throughout this episode I'm going to like sprinkle in Dostoevsky quotes and but just to kick us off here. So this is from the Gambler. Speaking of, I guess, uh, the addiction to gambling. If she had ordered me to throw myself down then, I would have done it. If she had said it only as a joke, said it with contempt, spitting on me, even then I would have jumped. Another one. I wanted to fathom her secrets. I wanted her to come to me and say, I love you. And if not that, if that was senseless insanity, then, well, what was there to care about? Did I know what I wanted? I was like one demented. All I wanted was to be near her in the hallow of her glory, in her radiance, always, forever, all my life. I knew nothing more. So, uh, you know, The Gambler is interesting. It's all about the allure of chance and winning, socio and economic betterment, the promise of that, um, being seen out in public, being appreciated, but also kind of the fallacy in all of this.
0: And, you know, The Gambler does touch home to some sociological facts. Um, Before we get in too deep, uh, too academically, academic-y as some people, uh, have emailed saying that, uh, sometimes we get, I want to, uh, kind of lighten the mood a little bit before we get into the, the doom and gloom, Matt. And, uh, you know, I have some historical figures and some facts about gambling games of chance. Um, would you like to hear some of them? Absolutely. All right. Now this seems, uh, you know, there's no way to actually verify this, but, um, you go to Subway, Matt?
1: Uh no, actually not subway? No, not often. No, of no. Jared thing, but whatever.
0: Uh, okay, well, like, what what do you get at a subway?
1: Um, I'm pretty boring, man. Just like a tuna melt. <laughs> like, honestly, okay. <laughs> not sure where you're going with this, but
0: all right. Well, uh, Subway makes sandwiches, right? That's what yes, they, do. they do. So there's somehow a link between the sandwich and gambling. Do you know huh? who maybe who that link uh, could be?
1: Um, I could pretend that I do, but no, I'm just going to be honest. Okay, So
0: apparently uh, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, which is okay. like a place, right? Uh, yeah. was actually John Multang. Uh, He lived in England from 1718 to 1792. He was a British state statesman and he was quite important, held some prestigious stations in both military and political office. So he had some, he had some coin, right? And at that time, and still today, when you have coin, what do you do? You gamble, Right. So he would stay long hours at the card table, and apparently he would request thin slices of meat between bread while he was gambling. And this became known as uh, the sandwich.
1: Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And do you think chips are called chips because of the poker chips? uh
0: maybe that fact is not in front of me right now Matt maybe I don't know
1: (laughs) (laughs) my friends when I'm driving I'm gonna tell you a little anecdote before we move on Phil when I'm driving often I'll just take a spontaneous left-hand turn right and it's from the movie hunt for the red October but it's called a crazy Ivan it's a submarine move where you just take an unexpected left-hand turn so I think I do that occasionally on our podcast (laughs) like you just did yeah
0: that was okay (laughs) Well, okay. Well, speaking of gambling, do you know what the dead uh, man's card or dead man's deal is? No, poker? actually, I don't. No. no, All aces that, and though. eights. Because, aces and eights? Yeah, because uh, some guy got killed when he had uh, aces and eights in his hand.
1: Oh, that's fine. There fun. you go.
0: Yeah. Huh. Uh, okay. Uh, well, if you're of the skeptic penchant, uh, who we call the modern or the father of modern skepticism... Uh, who has influenced as far as Waldo, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Descartes, Pascal, even maybe Shakespeare himself. You know who I'm talking about, Matt? Mm-mm. Michel de Montaigne. Okay. French Renaissance author, writer, uh, apparently huge gambler. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So was Descartes, apparently. Yeah, yeah. I can yeah. see.
1: that. It's interesting, though, because like, these are deep thinkers that you think they... Would be able to like over rationalize like the, the silliness behind gambling, but no, there's something alluring there, isn't there?
0: Well, apparently there is. Um, and okay, so the last figure that I'm gonna talk about because this one, I, you know, I think it might be verifiable, I think it might be, uh, but that is uh, probably where we got some of the world's best art, uh, happened after an 1891 lottery in France uh, that put. About thirteen thousand four hundred dollars into the pocket of Claude Monet, mm. founder of French Impressionism, uh, and we're not—you know—we could maybe speculate that we wouldn't have the art that we do for Monet had he not been able to live off that handsome sum of money in eighteen ninety-one, thirteen thousand bucks. You're—you're you're, you're, you got deep pockets, man.
1: Yeah, no kidding. And uh, the way those guys lived, uh, it'd probably be a. Uh, probably be a pretty good time so
0: (laughs) i'd take 13 grand right now in like uh, 2018 money
1: yeah can you imagine just sitting in a salon and a cafe and monet walks in with 13 grand in his pocket and you're just like okay it's gonna be a good night
0: it's gonna be a good night yeah you know uh, lots of uh i don't know cubes and uh, splashes of paint on a canvas or
1: something i'm
0: not a fan of monet but whatever (laughs) <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's get into the more academic stuff, Matt. Um, you know, some early concerns in the social sciences, particularly around sociology, have to do with the negative impacts of gambling. So there's this Puritan view that gambling is somehow related to idleness uh, and idleness uh, is bad because mm. we want people to be productive. So this, uh, this question, this problem was taken up by scholars from around the mid nineteen. Uh, 30s and 40s, um, but also as far back as Vemblin in the, the late 1800s. Um, and really, these questions of focusing on the negative impacts of gambling focus on why people gamble, their motives, economic, symbolic, or hedonic. So they're pleasure seeking. So we can kind of make sense of the economic grounds for why people gamble right Uh, they want to earn some money but then also there's the idea that money has lost its market value so 50 bucks that can buy you bread or milk outside uh, of a game uh, is no longer 50 dollars when you're playing the game it's seen as uh, just a chip so it loses kind of its market value Um, we can also think of the symbolic reasons why someone uh, gambles this is my favorite and this has to do in sociology anyway, with the work of Irvin Goffman. And really it's the realization that we live in a world in which there's not that many risks. Uh, We can go about our daily life um, relatively risk-free and we're probably even pushed a little bit not to take certain risks. So gambling is seen as a way in which we can create a persona or a, a certain mask that we can wear in which we do take certain risks. And the, the risks can be seen as a certain form of action towards the unknown. And through this, we can kind of get to the feeling in which we can control things that are generally risky. Um, so, you know, one of the things that Goffman has to offer us in that um, view is the idea that we're all on a stage and we're all kind of playing different roles as actors. Uh, he calls this dramaturgy. So when we're in a casino or when we're gambling, we're playing the role of someone who is really a risk taker. Whereas when you're at work, you're probably not. You're not going to risk someone's else's money, your boss's money, or your, um, you know, your company's money. But once it, when it's your money, you can take those certain risks. Uh, the third kind of area in which scholars attack the question of why people gamble is the hedonic. Um, comes from hedonism, where pleasure seeking. Um, So really, in this perspective, uh, the one that interests me anyway, is the one in which uh, people who gamble are doing it to increase their self-esteem, their self-image, to feel good about themselves. Uh, The money is kind of secondary in this sort of uh, explanation as to why people gamble. Uh, And uh, gambling is pure entertainment. So it's like a diversion. It's a play. Um, Could involve some strategy even. So people seek pleasure through gaming. Um, just like they would through sports like uh, hockey or soccer or something.
1: Okay, so uh, interesting. Okay, so I got a couple of points on to add to that, Phil. Um, so it's interesting what you said about the chips and how they lose their market value. Um, I think if we could think of the economic and the symbolic kind of being combined there, I witnessed this as a casino dealer, blackjack dealer. Uh, people were more likely to... You know, throw a $25 bet down on a single hand, which lasts like two minutes, um, and all a $25 bet is is like one single green chip. But right, you're yeah. less likely to put five red ones, five $5 chips out there, and you're certainly less likely to put 25 singles on there. You know, so they make it right, easy yeah. for you to bet more. And um, and it's just almost symbolically because your perception of that money in front of you changes. And I also like... um. Uh, combining like the symbolic, the hedonistic, and the socioeconomic. You see this in Dostoevsky. Um, he gambled for one, to make more money because he was super poor. Two, he thought symbolically um, he can look like a big shot, you know, and also hedonistically yep. he actually liked it and he wasn't afraid to say, but the crashes afterwards and uh, losing the money and having to pawn your like last pair of pants and <laughs> like that's the the realities of, uh, problem gambling, I think.
0: Yeah. And, you know, um, before we get into the classification of gambling, because I think calling it problem or non-problem, addictive, non-addictive, um, carries some weight. Like uh, those are important, important questions that arrive historically. Um, but coming back to your point of, you know, he actually liked it, uh, early psychoanalytic, analytic theory, uh, Posited that gamblers unconsciously wanted and needed to actually lose. So um, for some psychoanalysts um, escaping boredom, uh, the need for excitement was really too simplistic as an explanation as to why people gambled. So they actually proposed uh, some Freudian theories of um, patricidal and Oedipal, Oedipal conflicts. Um, uh, Oedipus or whatever. Oedip- yeah. O- Oedipal. Um, and you know, this is kind of out there, but it's the symbolic links between masturbation and gambling.
1: Mm.
0: And it seems to me like <laughs> someone like Duskajewski fits into that. I don't know, if just for some reason. Um, <laughs> so...
1: <laughs> he was a lonely guy, so maybe... He was a
0: lonely guy. Uh, and, you know, it's that pleasure-seeking. It's the relative instant gratification. It's, uh, yeah, being a master of one's hand, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and, um... That's funny. Um yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, sorry that totally derailed me. Uh yeah, no. And and he <laughs> he has an interesting story because he he went hard at roulette for like like 4 or 5 years or something and then he just sort of like stopped. Like he lost enough times and then he just like kind of stopped gambling. Um right, so it right. is kind of an interesting um a statement on self-control. So <laughs> Moving along yeah we um, can make all sorts of puns on that one absolutely so we better talk about phenomenology um so as i mentioned uh in the main chunk or the intro chunk there um i worked at a casino, two different casinos for a total of 12 months uh, six months each uh i wanted to do this episode because i think the way they train your body as a dealer um to comport yourself within the casino space is just absolutely fascinating and i know you're going to have some interesting thoughts on this. So without further ado, um, everybody who starts as a blackjack dealer has to go through the same training. It's very regimented. Um, Basically, uh, the first casino that I was working at, I worked graveyards, so the training took place in graveyards. So we got there at 11.30 p.m., and we were off at, I think, 6.30 a.m. So the training occurred overnight. Um, It was heavily regimented both on how much time we spent on certain activities, and the activities that we did. So we would deal blackjack hands, just counting up the numbers till we get past 20, 21 in a bust uh, for 45 minutes straight, just nonstop. Or countdown chips, 45 minutes. And it was always on a 45-minute schedule, something I'll talk about in a second, uh, because that's how the casino structures the time of the dealer. You're on for 45 minutes, and then you have a 15-minute break. and you go on for 45 and a 15-minute break. Um. so as a you know new dealer you le- learn level one table games so that includes blackjack baccarat and then all those like Caribbean stud poker three card poker all those random table games um, and that's it you don't learn poker as well um, now what I thought was really interesting about the training it reminded me a lot of like boot camp in the army because they are really yeah. like are shaping your body and not just your physical body, but how you move your body and position yourself in relation to the chips, the players, the pit boss, and the security cameras that are watching you all the time. So I think it's interesting, you would always have to have your hands on the table um, by the chip tray, not covering it because there's cameras over top of you. If your table was closed, you had to stand there with your hands like on either side of the chip tray and just stand like a statue um when you're dealing hands because the motions of your hands have been regulated through this and regimented through this training you get these weird muscle pulls like i remember like getting terrible like pains in my um that muscle between your neck and your shoulder okay yeah it was just like weird one or then my top of my right hip was another one because of just the twisting motion going left to right so that was kind of interesting um now you have to, as a dealer, you have to interact with the guests, but the way we interact is sort of it's neutral but friendly. Um, and then we have, so you have a table full of uh, players in front of you, and then you have this pit boss who is monitoring these four tables, like yours and three others. Um, so there's all this, like, these dynamics going on. So let's just sort of get, get us started. So.
0: Yeah, well, you know, what you're really hitting on, I think, is... Uh, Kind of the second area uh, that researchers have started more and more to pay attention to, and that's the idea of regulated gaming. So, for a long time in North American, Australian, and British history, uh, games of chance and gambling were illegal. Uh, they weren't state sanctioned. Uh, you know, people would do it underground, but these were generally kind of black room or black market sort of areas, right? It was illegal once the state, quote unquote, decided to legalize and bring in regulations around it, a whole series of apparatuses appear. And I think you've hit on some of them. So the idea of constant surveillance around the game and gaming, the idea of um, that the game uh, can't have cheats. So cheating is not part of the game, right? And there needs to be an active offer from whoever's regulating it to dissuade cheaters and kind of sift them out. Uh, so that's like an important aspect of our modern gambling apparatus is that, um, cheating and surveillance go together. Um, but you're talking about another really interesting thing, which is training the body to gamble Mm -hmm. and the way in which the body enters into a casino is also quite regulated from a customer perspective, but yet on the other side, these are called hospitality kind of offerings. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're supposed to have nice drinks, supposed to be relatively clean, maybe attached to a hotel, maybe some boutiques. You're able to really spend an evening of entertainment around your gaming play. But yet it's something that's so highly regulated that putting your arm somewhere could lead you to being escorted out by security. Yeah, so totally. The 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 kind of um freewheeling, nice hospitality sort of experience is countered by this very strict, regimented, and controlled space um, around a game. And that is really the hallmark of modern lotteries, uh, modern slots, modern games of chance, cards, uh, even horse racing, for example.
1: Mm -hmm. And it's like on the surface, just on the surface, it's like nice and clean and secure and safe, but right underneath that little veneer of safety is hyper surveillance scrutiny and suspicion exactly. so yeah. i right. remember for one um just in terms of dirtiness and cleanliness i remember just at each 45 minute break i'd wash my hands and they would look clean when i was about to wash them but then they would just be like gray coming off so the right. chips yeah. are disgusting that is that is a fact um mm-hmm. another thing i remember um the apparel like so they supply you with a complete uniform right Mm -hmm. um the shirts at both casinos were billowy in the arms but really tight at the cuffs so that you couldn't slip chips down your uh shirt sleeves right right um and then the pants this this is wild they look like they have pockets right Mm -hmm. the pockets are sewn sewn shut Yeah. yeah 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 and they're like as i mentioned before we go 45 minutes on 15 minutes off uh, you clock in and clock out when you arrive at the building as an employee, but you also sign in and sign out every time you go to a new table, right? right. Whether it's back to your old table or if you're a floater going to other ones. Um, and actually, it's it's interesting that they use that 45-minute on, 15-minute off kind of method that Phil and I know from grad school. It's actually really, really good for keeping you sharp and aware. Um, and what was interesting about the training and being a blackjack dealer Like, think about my concussions, right? I get scattered. I have no memory. I'm not really good at cognitively processing on the fly, let's just say. Um, But I was a really good dealer. And it was all because of this training and how they've, they shaped me into a capable dealer. Right. Uh, I mean,
0: the links between, like you said, the military um, are obviously quite uh, clear. Uh, Yeah, for sure. You know, one of the things that I'm going to, want to argue and talk about is that um, modern gambling uh, requires a state apparatus um, and that state apparatus uh, needs to legitimate the game for it uh, to be acceptable. So the only way in which gambling can be acceptable is if you have a dealer who's nicely dressed, Mm -hmm. who won't cheat, who is alert, who's chatty with the customers, um, you know, who has this outward expression of happiness even though their job is probably shit. Um, yeah. So the ways in which gambling gets legitimated uh, by the state, through the state, says something about the state. So my my kind of overarching argument throughout this episode is going to be that gambling is part of state formation. It's part of how we understand the state and how we understand what the state does and can do. Um, so when we're talking about governing bodies in places this is something that also happens for homeless people for example they can't be in a certain park happens for agents of the state like police officers who need to wear certain uniforms there's nothing that distinct about the gambling arena um, when it's when it's seen through the uh, the eyes or the lens of state formation that's going to be kind of my larger argument
1: yeah, and I have like a doozy of an example at the end, uh, from British Columbia about the voluntary self-exclusion program, uh, and then yep, some yep. details about like sin taxes and how the state basically, um, on one hand supports uh, gambling in British Columbia at least, but on the other hand, they they try to oppose it and call it a public health crisis. So we'll get to that for yep, sure. But yep. what I was thinking in terms of state formation, you see. Obviously, you know, but states are often organized hierarchically and uh, mm-hmm. the casino is no different. So I referenced them before, but pit bosses are like your immediate supervisor. They're like mm-hmm. right there beside you wearing like a nice black uh, suit or um, um, like a power suit if it's a woman, like yep. a nice skirt. Uh, but even their clothes are very specifically uh, chosen. Um, you also have your fellow coworkers who you're not allowed to talk to when you're on the floor and not even really look at. Um and then you also have the players and then there's other support people like uh, cleaners and the people who work behind the, um, the cage uh, where you exchange your chips for money and so on. So what I think is interesting about state formation is that the casino is very hierarchically organized. So the pit bosses, in terms of your daily operations, are some of the most powerful people in the casino, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. they just sort of float around. They watch dealers. Um, they... Close, um close in on you if you make a little mistake and you're counting um, they talk to power uh, to talk to people but they have the most power. Cleaners on the other hand have the least authority and value in a sense but also sort of weirdly the most freedom of movement. Nobody talks to them. I, I did I'd say hello because I'm not an evil person but basically nobody really talked to the cleaners and they wouldn't even really acknowledge your presence. they just sort of float in and out. Um, so, they're the lowest in terms of power, but they actually have the most freedom of movement, which I think is interesting. Um, so, you also have your coworkers, right? So, when you're on the floor, you can't talk to them. You can't even really make eye contact. You can kind of nod in their direction, but. Um, if the casino sees that you're fraternizing with your coworkers on the floor too much, they'll get suspicious that you two are in cahoots trying to steal chips. Right. So you barely, therefore, talk in the lunchroom on your break. Usually, you're so exhausted that you just like, man, I just want to drink some water and not talk to anyone for a second. Um, but that's the coworkers. So they have like equal amount, and then based on what games you're able to deal, that determines your placement in, in, in this little hierarchy, and then. Again, there's players, of course, right? I happen to be like a pretty friendly dealer, but I was also a killer, right? So people never won. In terms of winners in 12 months, I had maybe 10 winners in total. And at the end, to wrap it up this episode, I'll give you um, my biggest loss story and the biggest win story that I dealt myself. So that's a little bit about the hierarchies and how it kind of reflects our own social hierarchies in our own society. Yeah.
0: I, you know, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I don't want to spend too much time on this point because um, really, you know, it's quite a bleak sort of outlook uh, or it could be a bleak sort of outlook. But one of the things that I'm interested in, Matt, is uh, who are your uh, coworkers? Who are your customers? Um, You know, how did you, did you call them customers or players? Uh, That sort of discursive uh, Mm. labeling of it. I'm, I'm kind of interested in that.
1: Yeah. Um, I never referred to them as gamblers, um, but uh, I don't even remember, like, customers, I think, is what I would go with. Yeah. okay. I And, and you know what? I was just sort of friendly. I, I got a lot of, like, people calling me guilo a lot, actually, which means white devil in, uh, like, Mandarin or Cantonese, um, which is, like, a racial slur towards white people. <laughs> um, they would call me, guilo, you're a bad dealer. And I'm like, eh. You're a bad player, and they just love it. So <laughs> it was quite uh, fun. I got a lot of like insults sent my way, but I was able to deflect them pretty nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, the casino, by and large, though, didn't like that amount of positivity and friendliness. They wanted you to be emotionally neutral towards the players, with a slight like courteousness, almost like the way you'd be on like the golf course, right? You know, so, so it was, more or yeah, less it was stoic. Tricky. Yeah, stoic. And then when they they lose, you're like. Ooh, bad break, um, or bad beat, you know? Um, but when you flip over a 21 as a blackjack dealer, you're not supposed to be like, and 21, yay. And you just take all their money away. Um, you know, they want you somewhere in the middle, just a little notch above on the positivity side, I'd say.
0: Now, as a dealer, uh, you're playing for the house and your winnings are not your winnings, correct?
1: Um, that's right. Yeah. And when you give a tip to a dealer, just as a good thing to know, it goes into a big pool and everybody just distributes it based on how many hours you've worked.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, the idea of, uh, beating the house, is this like a fraught sort of, uh, pop reference? Do you really beat the house or do you beat the dealer in front of you?
1: Um, you, you're playing against a house, for sure. Um, and you'll notice, um, I'll just say right off the bat, in terms of odds, and we won't go too deep into this, but uh, Baccarat, which is... Um, it's an old game, um, but basically it's got like 50-50 odds. I mean, it's like 50-49. There's like a 1% chance for the house. Um, blackjack is good, but only if you don't use an automatic shuffler. If you use an automatic shuffler, the odds are like 6%. And um, slot machines are the worst. Um... And then the only game where the house is not involved in a casino in modern casinos is poker so poker right. the house takes like maybe two three bucks out of every pot um, just to pay for the dealer essentially right. and then you're playing against other players that's why the house is not involved
0: right so I think this moves us it's a great segue into the certain types of gaming uh, as you mentioned there are some that are purely um, chance based uh, playing dice for example purely chance based the slots it's based on some sort of algorithms chance um and then there are certain ones that are games uh, of skill like poker um there are other ones that are kind of like a mix where one could uh construct the argument that you have to be skillful but yet there's still an element of chance um horse racing for example is uh, is one of these sorts of elements of chance but also skillful in being able to read uh, the the matchups um
1: yeah Sports betting is another good one. example of exactly.
0: that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, now, w- what, what I find uh, fascinating is that um, for the longest time, uh, games of chance uh, were outlawed. They were uh, illegal, right? You couldn't, you couldn't put money or wager money uh, on games of pure chance. It was just seen as kind of bad for the overall economy. However, most of North America at some point in large cities had lotteries to be able to fund uh, infrastructure projects one that comes to mind the olympics in montreal in 1976 was funded in part by a lottery so people could buy a ticket uh, let's say two dollars a ticket one dollar went to building the stadiums and the housing complexes the other dollar went back into like a 50 50 sort of draw uh, sort of lottery thing right um so state sponsored lotteries when it comes to raising taxes have been okay but um purely betting on dice or games of chance uh, haven't always been.
1: Yes, and in British Columbia, it's the exact same thing. Um, the casinos there and the lottery tickets, the horse track like Hastings, um, they, they're they all taxed and quite heavily actually. Now, originally when uh, the province opened itself up to gaming, um, they were supposed to take something like 70% off the top of casinos uh, gross. Uh, cash intake. So not even like what they made in profits, but gross. Uh, That has gotten whittled down. And it was also supposed to be earmarked to um, health and wellness uh, initiatives. So Mm. essentially like paying for young people's like athletic fees or equipment or doing like promotional things through schools, you know, about eating right and stuff like this. Um, Now, surprise, surprise, as politicians do, uh, won't name any names, but it just got chunked into general revenue, as far as I remember. Um, right. But I do have some more like, concrete facts about that a little bit later when it comes to the voluntary self-exclusion program. But essentially, um, what happened is uh, the money just sort of got yeah, sent into the public coffers and never really to be seen again. Honestly, it probably helped pay for the Olympics, let's be honest.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, yeah. you got to pay for them somehow.
1: Exactly. And that's what they had to do in Montreal as well. And I'm sure Calgary had some similar like lottery thing that they probably did to pay for their Olympics as well. And, you know, that's how it's done. Um, Now, I have a Dostoevsky quote, if you will indulge me, Philip. Um, And it's about the sensation of gaming. So I want to talk about actually playing games at a casino. And what's that like? Um, So it goes from The Gambler again. If the spirit has passed through a great many sensations, possibly it can no longer be stated with them, but grows more excited and demands more sensations and stronger and stronger ones until at length it falls exhausted. And going on with a further quote. Or perhaps it is because it is so necessary for you to win. It's like a drowning man catching at a straw. You yourself will agree that unless he were drowning, he would not mistake a straw for that trunk of a tree. So, The experience of gambling is, on one hand, very, very exhilarating, but then it's also this, you know rationally that it's like a drowning man reaching for a straw. And as you're reaching for that straw, it just, um, you know, you keep reaching and all of a sudden, next thing you know, you went to the ATM for the fourth time at the casino.
0: (laughs) Right, yeah. You know, this comes back, um, so I think this is a, a broader point as to gambling, but I think uh, the quote that you just read sort of really picks it up. And that's our idea that uh, when we want to have, when we want to engage in consumption, so that idea that when we pay for something, when we want to consume something, um, it has to be based in an experience. So experiential consumption is probably the hallmark of our modern society. Uh, When you go to the movies, when you eat, when you Uh, Go to a casino. You're looking for an experience. And part of the gambling experience, psychologists tell us, is the idea of being up on your luck or down on your luck. And some people actually budget for it. So I'm going to go to the casino and I have 200 bucks. And if I lose all of it, that's just the price of entertainment. And again coming back to the legitimation of gambling this idea has been popularized by casinos as a marketing technique uh, tactic uh, tactic right mm. so budget your time budget your money come and have fun and then leave don't stay here all day like you're you're not going to get that money back but if you see it as, a, as an expense to an evening out then it's more palatable
1: uh, and then you can stay and have some dinner a couple of drinks maybe see a show exactly and, uh, but that's interesting they don't even pretend that you have a chance at winning even though you do still technically it may be a little lower and like you know it should be stated that the percentages on all games at casinos including like table games like blackjack or say roulette um they're all the odds are heavily regulated and if a casino is found to be like making adjustments to slot machines or um skewing the odds in uh, say a blackjack game or a roulette uh, wheel uh they will get fined like significantly And then also gamblers um, or clients, they won't go to that casino anymore. It'll lose its reputation. So that should be stated. Like you do have a chance of winning. It's just small. Um, And as I stated earlier, I mentioned what games you have the best chance at. So what I find fascinating at the casino, Phil, is the slots. I never play slots. I don't get it. I don't understand why anyone could be entertained by it. But my mom and my grandma, remember Matt's mom, friend of the show? Hey, mom. Hey, um, they hey, love going <laughs> they love going to the casino um and playing slots and it's sort of like as you described it's an it's a day out they go for lunch they chat with people next to them it's kind of social um so it's it's sort of it's tame but you know they drop like drop some money every once in a while there. So, um, and as a dealer, I would just be, often and as a graveyard shift dealer, I, my table would be closed. So I'd just be standing there with my hands, palms face down, staring straight forward, um, looking at people playing slots. So for hours and hours on end, I've observed slot machine players. So here's a couple of just really rapid fire ones, and I'll get your thoughts, um, of rapid fire observations I've made on slot players. So, nowadays like before a slot you know you have to put your individual quarters in and pull like the lever now it's all digital um, and they even have these frequent player cards that are attached to people's waist, and they literally plug them right into the slot machine so i think you're it's almost like you're attached physically to the right. slot yeah yeah right and it also that card because you load it up with money like the chips we mentioned earlier it disassociates you from your money so you're more likely to spend more of it because it's not just sitting there in Absolutely, a bucket yeah. full of quarters, right? Yeah. Um, now, these cards also track your play, track where you are in the casino, um, how frequently you come in, all the metrics that you would imagine it tracks. Um, but it also, they all have loyalty programs associated with them, so it encourages you to return to their particular casino and play those slots. Um, the chairs, they only rotate 170 degrees. Not even 180 is a little bit less than that, so you can never fully turn yourself away from the slot machine. Okay. Plus you're attached with this card that is usually attached to, with one of those little strings to your waist. So you're always kind of in front of the machine. And the back of the chair fill is tilted forward like 15 degrees rather than being straight up 90 degrees. It's like forward a bit. So you're kind of leaning forward. Um, it's, it's very interesting, like the sounds anybody knows, modern slot machines, there's visuals and manic um, sounds and they're all... There's a variety. It's manic. It's like, like it's all over the place. And that's to keep your mind engaged, but also suck you into a sensorial world where you don't notice the things around you. That's why right. people, when yeah. they play slots, man, they look like they're really locked in. And it's because of the sensory overload. Yeah.
0: And um, so some of the things that you're talking about are echoed in a 1997 Journal of Leisure Research paper uh, by June coat c-o-t-t-e um you know the title of paper is uh chances trances and lots of slots gambling motives and consumption experiences and one of the things they did was they entered into casinos and they they talked with people who were casual gamblers um so one of the 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 kind of categories that they developed was that um gambling is an escape so you can slow on a slot machine Um, and really you start to daydream. You think of what it's like to be a millionaire, for example, or what would happen if you hit the big jackpot, 50,000 bucks, what would you do that money? Would you buy a car, truck? Would you go on vacation? Um, so these are forms of escape, much like the movies. So the paper kind of argues that the idea that people who sit around playing slots, for example, um, are being idle, uh, you know, the the paper really challenges that, that, that notion. Um, one of the interesting things that you started off with Matt, before you, you got into it was a category that Cote uh, or Cote um, calls uh, rebels are gamblers who add gambling to a litany of personal consumption behaviors when they are motivated to define themselves as rebels or different from the crowd. So, um, the rebel gambler, and um, they quote uh, in passing kind of uh, interactions between two, um, two, ga- two people uh, in their early 20s. Uh, they're leaving the roulette area. And on their way out of the casino, they go buy the slot machine. So they're just kind of walking by, right? And, you know, while roulette has really bad odds, uh, and it's a game of chance, are uh, slot machines, these two men are talking about how much smarter they are to play real games, quote unquote, right? So the first man says, can you believe them? Just sit there and keep plugging money in. What a waste of time. And the second guy goes, yeah, my mom plays those all the time. Just a bunch of old ladies. I want a real feel like i'm playing man not just sitting there losing cash i want a real feel right (laughs) so just sitting there plugged in daydreaming escapism that's not what these gay gamers or gamblers are in the casino to do they're there to use their talents use their skills uh do something productive not uh, sit back and watch a bunch of stuff move on a screen um
1: and I, I, like, um, I like that the scholars uh, at least introduced some other idea other than it's just degenerates playing degenerate stuff out there and it's just idleness, right? Um, so when I talk to my grandma and my mom and ask them, like, why do you go to the slot machines? Why do you go to the casino? It seems so boring. Um, so one, so these are some of the reasons they say. One, it's kind of like a video game. And for my mom and my grandma, it's like mind blowing. So if you think about it, people can play video games for hours yeah, I guess you can play a slot machine for hours as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um yeah. they also actually describe it as quite social. Um my mom and my grandma are social people, but they uh, they chat with people and uh, they chat to the cleaners and the uh, the slot attendants and so on and so forth and people say hello sometimes if they recognize them. So it's kind of like kind of like a clubhouse in that in that sense, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um and it's interesting when you look at slot players, there's slot machines that are organized around like a really flashy display that has like an um, accumulating jackpot on it, right? Those people right, who play yeah, that yeah. Um, progressive jackpot, yeah, they, they are a lot more social. They're like all in it together and they're chatty. But then there's other slot players who just go off into a quiet corner, play a slot that's not even that fancy, um, and just do it alone, don't talk to anybody. It's usually dark over there. Um, those people, um, those players are they're in it for some of those financial gains. I think disassociating imagining themselves as somebody else, or when you look at them, man, the look on their face is not daydreamy or happy. (laughs) Like it's just sort of like mechanical in that, at that point. Yeah. 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 Um, Matt,
0: I, I'm going to take a short break on that note because I think it will set us up nicely for the next, uh, kind of, uh, part that we're going to start looking at. Um, and to do so, I want to play a track from the band Alexander. Band Alexander is an alt-pot group from Indianapolis, Indiana. Their debut EP album, Playing Basements, is available everywhere. I strongly suggest Bandcamp uh, and Apple. Uh, do we call it... Uh, it's not iTunes anymore. The Apple Store to buy music? I think that's that's what it's called?
1: Once they figure out how to make rating podcasts easier, then we'll call them by their proper name.
0: Yeah. I mean, for the band Alexander, just go to Spotify, Bandcamp, uh, Apple Music. Just buy them off uh, any, uh, any of those. Uh, you can also reach them on Facebook at Band Alexander. And we are going to play a track titled The Things We Never Say.
2: Maybe it's not anyone's fault Maybe we're both in the wrong Maybe the fire finally burned out Maybe we watched it go Maybe you already know But I'll say it anyway We became everything we hate Darling, we became strangers We became things we never say We lost more than patience We became everything we hate Darling, all these years you've changed us we became the things we never say We lost more than patience What happened to the passion we had last year When we were wild with abandon and love without fear I remember the days our love was enough For the both of us When my lover and my best friend Were the same person But then We became everything we hate all and we became strangers We became the things we never say We lost more than patience We became everything we hate in all, all these years you've changed We lost more than patience. We lost more than patience. I'm feeling so old. You're feeling so cold, and you seem so far away. I'm feeling so old. You're feeling so cold And you seem so far away I'm feeling so old You're feeling so cold And you seem so far away I'm feeling so old
0: That was the band, Alexander, with their track, The Things We Never Say. Welcome back. Uh, we were talking casinos. We were talking gambling. Um, Matt uh, has some experience uh, as a dealer. So, Matt, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how, uh, where you worked, um, it was laid out. Uh, you know, what does it look like? What, what, what are we seeing?
1: So as a phenomenological jerk, I like to think of layout as a sensorial layout. So we mentioned you know, how the chairs are, are um, set up around slot machines, what slot machines are like and things. But by and large, when you walk into a casino, this is what you're going to see, hear, smell, feel, and move through. Um, every casino is organized in pretty much similar way. Uh, when you walk through the doors, you're hit with a big bank of uh, slot machines, and you have to go to the right or left around it, so you can't go right right through an, a corridor. The ceilings are usually like 50 feet high, even taller. They're very, very high ceilings, um, and that is to promote oxygen circulation. Um, carpets on, in casinos are intentionally designed to be disorienting, uh, so if you look at, next time you go into a casino, look at the pattern of the carpet, and you can see it sort of guides you down corridors, but it's it's tough to look at, basically, so it keeps your eyes up-facing forward, looking at like slot machines and table games and things like this. Um, But what I think is most interesting about casinos and how they're laid out is that you you can see the cameras, Um, sometimes you can't, but you have this pervasive sense of being stared at constantly when you're moving through the space. You're always being watched, whether it's by cameras or by employees, even the people who clean up the slot machines are keeping their eye on you. So everyone's watching you all the time. Why do you think that is? Um, I, they say it's to prevent theft, uh, which makes a lot of sense. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's just, I think it's to keep everybody in line, whether they be employees, pit bosses even, and the, um, the clients, the the players, you know, I I think it's just everybody knows it's there. So everybody comports themselves accordingly.
0: Right. Um, I'm going to throw something a little different because this is why I think this is, and it goes back to Goffman. So Goffman's uh, dramaturgical approach, which says that we are all actors on a stage and we're able to put on different roles, play different roles, put on different masks at different times, et cetera. And the idea that one who walks into the casino wants to put on their risk taker mask, but for a good show, for a good drama, you need an audience, don't you, Matt? And That's what true. you've been describing to us, uh, the whole time is, uh, a lot of, uh, solitary kind of maneuvering, right. Sitting alone at, uh, those uh, tables. Uh, yeah, there's other people around. They're not really paying attention to you. Um, so I think that one of the reasons why there's so many cameras and that all pervasive sense of being watched is to facilitate the risk taker role is to allow people to actually play out that, that role to go in there and. Uh, get a sense that all eyes are on them. You Ooh, know, they're center all stage.
1: All eyes on me. Yeah. Like all two eyes Montcray. on me. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Uh,
0: I like so that. yeah, I think, I think that plays into the atmosphere, uh, that the casinos and other places that have gambling, uh, try to create this, uh, you know, it's a stage. So come act out your role and then, uh, get the hell out, leave.
1: Now, if you have a, uh, state that is, uh, or a province in this case of British Columbia, who is sanctioning, casinos and all the other gaming and gambling and collecting revenues from it. So then you can say that the state is profiting from individual gamers' um, uh, risk-taking behaviors, right? Absolutely, yeah. Interesting. So um, a lot of people will say that casinos and, say, lottery tickets as well, I think, is a good example. These are um, sin taxes. So in Canada, we either slap a tax on something like cigarettes, alcohol, alcohol, um, or we uh, take a cut like uh, from lottery sales or casino revenues. Um, so, But it's also, gambling is often cast as a tax on the poor. There's this moralizing component that is pervasive still, that it's only the downtrodden, the lazy, the people who don't have jobs or who are underemployed, those are the ones who have problems with gambling because those are the ones who probably want to get rich quick so that is the social like perception of who gambles even though i could tell you as a blackjack dealer it's everybody everybody right, right yeah
0: yeah and you know that that idea that it is um the laboring classes uh that gamble stems from again this fear of idleness um, but also i think and this is where i'll kind of contradict what i just said is that um some uh laboring classes uh, upper class um you know entrepreneurs or people who own businesses uh or even uh the working class the middle class um they have more opportunity for risk taking behavior uh in their every kind of day-to-day life right uh, so if you're someone who uh, bets on wall street if you're an investor you're you're taking risks every day do you necessarily need to go into a casino to feel uh that risk taking no you probably go in there just to have fun right maybe a bachelor party uh Maybe you go twice, three times a year, um, but if you're not in an economic or social position to be able to take risks, maybe you go to the casino more often. Just a thought.
1: So what I think as well, just to tack onto that, Phil, um, it's kind of the dynamic of the state sanctioning casinos and gaming um, on the one hand, but and in, encouraging it in, in that sense, but then on the other hand, they are funding programs that are made to help what the state seems to deem as problem gamblers. So um, what that kind of brings us to is this voluntary self-exclusion program that exists in British Columbia. Now, it was brought in in 1999, and it sounds exactly like what you think it was. If you feel like you yourself, and this is a moralizing problem, and and you're you know, moralizing yourself in this sense. But if you feel like you have a problem with gambling, it is your responsibility to sign up for this program. And then the casino will use various technologies, including license plate uh, readers, um, uh, to bar you from entry uh, to a casino. Um, There is three different levels in PC that you can do. The first one is just casinos. The second one is like racetracks and bingo halls. And then the third one is, um, includes those plus... um, Uh, online gaming so there's like you can play scratch tickets now in BC online so this is the idea of the self-exclusion program and as I said it came in in 1999 Um, I actually have a Dostoevsky quote if if I can Um, relating to this moralizing process of people who have problems gambling um, nothing could be more absurd than moral lessons at such a moment. Oh, self-satisfied people! With what proud self-satisfaction such babblers are ready to utter their pronouncements! If they only knew to what degree I myself understand all the loathsomeness of my present condition, they wouldn't have the heart to teach me. And I think that is quite powerful. That what I notice as well is gamblers, especially those who you might say have a problem with gambling. They themselves know that they have a problem with gambling. It's not completely disassociated.
0: Right. Yeah. And you know, the, I think you're, you're, you're pointing at something relatively interesting here and we'll come back a little bit in history. Um, but the idea of the compulsive gambler really, uh, stems from 1950s psychoanalytic research into gaming and it was considered a mental illness. It's a compulsion, right? Um, and it took uh, until 1980, uh, where pathological gambling was first introduced into the DSM-3, uh, largely through the efforts of psychiatrist Robert Kussler, uh, who for a number of years had treated pathological gamblers. and They're also commonly referred to as compulsive gamblers. Um, and it was the first time that the notion of pathological gambling was officially classified, uh, classified um, as a psychological disorder. Um, and psychiatrists, uh, would be able then to treat, um, this, this addiction, uh, today, um, gambling falls under the addiction, uh, section of the DSM. Uh, so it requires, uh, several different criteria. Um, you know, one of them, for example, is that, uh, it has to have a negative impact on your family and, you know, for, for, for someone who's interested in social dynamics, I think that might be a good thing. You know, we might be able to say that if your gaming, if your pleasure seeking activity has caused you a loss of relationship, job or career, uh, that that is problematic.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And I don't think, um, like when it comes to moralizing processes, I think there are certain limits to it. So there are, you know, that's clearly a, an issue for people. in in, in that sense, um, now, I have a, two reports, um, and maybe we could post the links that are publicly available, but one is about high-risk games, um, and down on like, page 10 of this report, they list the most high-risk games, essentially, to in, in encourage problem gambling. And it, they don't say addiction, but they're like compulsive gambling. Uh, and slot machines, uh, surprise, surprise, are right up at the top uh, in terms of the games that people play most frequently. Um, Now, I also have mentioned throughout that gambling is often cast as a public health concern. I have another report from BC that um, goes way into that details, um, so maybe we can share a link there as well. Um, But when it comes to this voluntary self-exclusion, the controversy really arose um, maybe nine years after it was put in place, so somewhere around 2009-2010. Uh, right around the time for the Olympics, actually, I just thought of that. Um, but basically, people who have signed up for this were not barred from the casino. Um, they were allowed to continue game uh, gaming. Um, but if they did win a jackpot, which is considered like five thousand dollars or more, the casino at that point would withhold their their jackpot winnings. Right, so they let them play. You know, win one hundred and fifty bucks, lose three hundred and fifty bucks, win five bucks, lose two thousand dollars. That was fine. But once they win a jackpot, that's when they scrape it back. Now, Mm. it's interesting. People have tried to sue the government, but believe it or not, in the fine print of this voluntary self-exclusion program, that is actually one of the stipulations. If you do win a jackpot and you have voluntarily self-excluded yourself, then the casino is within its rights to hold on to that. And this is considered a penalty.
0: Mm. Now, is it the case that these people have been voluntarily excluded from the BC Lottery Commission and Gaming Commission, uh, then just travel? Like, BC is pretty close to the US border.
1: Yeah, or you can go to Alberta, but yeah, you can go across. My my grandma and my mom go to Silver Lake uh, Casino all the time, actually, which is just across right. the line. Um, yeah, and that's one of the issues. There's also a fine of $5,000, um, but it's never been enforced, actually. Um, I guess they just jack your uh, jackpots. Um, But it's interesting. I have dug up another report here. Uh, So this is on page 24. I'll just read the quote. Um, It comes, um, so it came from January 2011. So the BC government started getting sued in 2009 and 10. So they issued this um, study kind of assessing the voluntary self-exclusion program. So here's a quote from it. Uh, perhaps the most important issue identified in this review is the issue of consequences for breaching voluntary self-exclusion agreements. Currently, the only real consequence for breaching a VSE agreement, aside from ejection from the venue, is a withholding of winnings. This is a good step, but not sufficient. Consistency, uh, or, um, consistently, those interviewed for this review express the need for more meaningful consequences. This importance of having consequences and a graduated response for increased breaches is consistent with the effect, extensive discussions that have occurred with gaming providers, treatment providers and so on um, and then they continue by saying that is why this report recommends that the BC Lottery Commission review its options in this area and build greater teeth in its process
0: hmm. well it so seems to me like, though, they're, yeah. like, they're, like they're really trying to walk a fine line and the fine line is being able to offer a service to the public, which is, uh, you know, clean, professional-run um, joints for gaming. Uh, and the other line, which is uh, wanting to prevent or heighten instances of uh, mental health, um, the, the negative effects that gambling and gaming uh, could incur.
1: Yeah, and um, as you mentioned as well, Phil, the, the socioeconomic effects... Um, they're all wrapped up in there and it's funny though the moralizing or the blaming process is always directed at the gamer and their inability to maintain control so i won't read these big long quotes from it but there's a number of news stories um the cbc actually has been on this story um way back uh back in the early 2000s uh so there's a number of examples of people who have sued the the provincial government actually because the lottery is provincially mandated uh, but they don't win because they, that is in the rules that they can withhold winnings if you've signed up for this program. So they're actually right. legally like, kind of up the creek, right?
0: Right. Um, you know, it, this is part of a broader discussion, and I think uh, we could do uh, at least a full episode on the idea of addictions and compulsions and um, how state apparatuses um, really discursively shape those sorts of things We can think about it, like, you know, with police or we can think about it with social services. Um, and I think gaming and lottery commissions are one area in which they have huge discursive power to call someone an addict or a compulsive gambler. Um, and they can do so uh, quite literally by excluding them from spaces. Um, so, you know, if you get labeled a problematic gambler, you're no longer allowed back into that casino. And it has to do with upholding an image of gaming as being trustworthy, uh, gaming as being clean, fun, entertainment, uh, you know, come in budget to lose 200 bucks and, uh, have a, have a night on us, right. Uh, not, uh, come feed your addiction for, and your crave for risk taking. Uh, so those are, um, you know, probably the two sorts of axes that we could, uh, draw out as a conclusion to this episode. Uh, but Matt, before we wrap it up, uh, what's your final word on, uh, taking bets?
1: Um, well, you know what? I- I'm just going to finish with a Dostoevsky quote, because why the hell not? I'm terrible at reading quotes. So I could use a practice. So last one from the gambler. Um, kind of wraps it all up, actually. Well, what? What new thing can be said to me that I don't know myself? And is that the point? The point here is that one turn of the wheel and everything changes, and these same moralizers will be the first, I'm sure of it, to come with friendly jokes to congratulate me. And they don't And they won't all turn away from me as they do now. Spit on them all. What am I now? Zero. What am I be tomorrow? Tomorrow I may rise from the dead and begin to live anew. I may find the man in me before he is lost. So Dostoevsky, I feel like, says it all. I encourage you all to read that book. It's amazing.
0: That is an amazing book. Uh, The Gambler. Uh, Matt, uh, we are on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. We're also on Facebook at The SimPod. Uh, we would appreciate, love, uh, even desire. Our dreams would come true if you would email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, uh, Pocket Cast, uh, Podknife, uh Podcatcher, uh, I don't know, the internet, like just <laughs> <Robin> wherever, <laughs> wherever you want, uh, just, you know, subscribe to us. Uh, that would lead, that would, uh, you know, it, it would give us some confidence in, in times of despair, uh, like the current atmosphere that we live in. Um, you know what else offers us some comfort? The tunes of the band Alexander. Uh, we're going to leave you with a track called Too Late for your love, Matt, but it's not too late to talk about them. Band Alexander is an alt pop group from Indianapolis, Indiana. It's their debut album, Playing Basements. You can find them uh, pretty much everywhere on the internet as well. You know, they're, uh, they've gone digital. But if you want to support the band Alexander and their debut album, uh, check them out on Spotify and Apple Music. When we come back, we'll have some thank yous, some shout outs, uh, some friends of the pod. Uh, so stay tuned Welcome everyone to the thank yous portion of the show. Uh, Today's thank yous are all going to be from Twitter. So this is like a uh, Twitterverse massive thank you. I want to start the thank yous by thanking another podcast. Uh, This one is called Penance RPG Podcast. They are at Penance RPG and they are a weekly fantasy RPG brought to you in podcast form described as chaotic, hilarious, and unapologetically blunt by fans. So check them out. New episodes every Sunday. Uh, They do, they, they did this really neat thing where they write uh, a little story uh, that goes uh, with some music and they did it for slammerkin. So check out their account and uh, you'll see uh, some, some awesome greatness that's happening there. Uh, I have a super long list of people who have been supporting us on Twitter today. So I'm going to, I'm going to hammer through this. All right. So Up on the top of the list, The Frankenpod, followed by The Pod Stuff, Ono Lit Class, Dashing Digressions, Dimly Lit, Our Strange Skies, Lindsay Johnson. Thank you. Thank you, folks. You know, you guys are just freaking awesome. Uh, Retweeting, thanking us on Twitter. Uh, Gallus Girls and Wayward Women. Uh, Great account. 33% Pulp. The Stranger Lands, Murderish Podcast, Hello Life WTF, Awesome Sunday Show, Build a Band, The Of Myth and Mercy Podcast, Cult of Domesticity, Infinite Deer, which is a Dungeons and Dragons podcast, check them out, they're a lot of fun, uh, Rob Panic Christofferson, your UFO guy, BS Pod PHX, hilarious. One who has been supporting us for a long time now on Twitter, drinks with Larry. It's a comedy, video game, science fiction, nerd culture, movie, Star Wars. Lots of Star Wars stuff going on. It's a podcast. Check them out. Varmint's best forever pod. Relic, the haunted podcast. Flicks X-rated restaurant. Restaurant podcast. The Brocast podcast. Sunshine and power cuts this is amazing this podcast is the definition of off grid life uh, from new zealand a lot of fun and they made an appearance on podstuff so check out that episode as well if you uh, if you can fiercely altered podcast bombarded brain trust bros an awesome network rough draft podcast nerdy podcast most okayest podcast lots of podcasts here You know, the podcast community has been really supportive and, uh, I want to spend today just thanking y'all. So, uh, let's carry on the list. I got more Thursday catch up. Trust me. I'm a therapist, ice in the face, gamma radio, Corey Johnston, who's also at hardcore skeptic. He is the host producer at brainstorm podcast. Uh, we were a guest on their show, Nick and Vince's podcast work, life and balance podcast. Check them out, check them all out. Leave them all ratings and reviews. The Belief Books, great new podcast, Alternative History, the Skip and Josh podcast. They have been with us from the start. The Species podcast, Sometimes Greek, the Sinbud podcast, Martinis and the Macabre, the Sea Dogs, Sipping Sisters pod, Rise of King Asalas, Murderous Miners podcast, a podcast all about young people. Who Kill, if you're into true crime, you're going to like that one. Very Dark, Very Quick, The All Seen Eye, Nerd Stop, Pot Boiler Cinema, Yikes, the podcast, The Dork Night podcast, For Whom the Dice Roll, Sprinkle Face, Young, Free, and Coupled podcast, a great podcast about a young married couple discussing laughing on all society throws at them. Really fun a story to tell do you have a story to tell they're looking for unique stories they can tell from the comfort of an email in person recording or phone call get in touch with them they're from the UK great great project going on there the steely empire podcast network pod knife we've talked about pod knife before it is a information and review service you can search you can share you can do anything you want for your podcast needs, desires, and wants through Podknife. Uh, So thank you so much to everyone who has supported us on Twitter. Uh, We are on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore pod. So follow us, uh, retweet, like our stuff. That's what you do on that platform. We're also on Facebook at the SimPod. Uh, You can send us an email, semiintellectual at gmail.com. Subscribe to the show, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. But remember, if you are a friend of the show, we are going to thank you each episode. So let us know you're out there. Let us know you're listening and uh, let us know how we can get into contact with you, how we can tell others to get into contact with you. Uh, You know, it really means a lot to us today. We played tracks from the band Alexander. You can check them out on SoundCloud, check them out on Facebook at band Alexander. Uh, They are a alt pop group from Indianapolis, Indiana with their debut album, playing Basements, and this is a track off that new album called She's a Mess. Talk to you all next time.
2: Got some habits I picked up There's nothing she can't fix She's got some back of her on There's nothing I can't live But I don't know what she wants I don't know what she wants Is it honesty or is it escape? I don't know what she wants I don't know what she wants I'll go There's nothing I can't care She's on some shit herself But she does it so well. well. I admit she's everything to me. Well, I'm aware she doesn't have a shit together. Well, I don't care, she's not. Ordinary, she's a mess, but she does it so well.